what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Every positive pursuit in life, every progression of personal development, change is fueled by one thing, inspiration. It's the drive and the hunger that propels every good endeavor. Without it, we merely have a dream, but never actually move. With it, we can actually overcome insurmountable odds to achieve our desires, convictions, and calling. In this show, we come together to drill down into what really makes success tick and how we can apply it to our unique personal and work lives. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and right now we're going to inspire your true performance. Hey, everyone, this is Kevin Miller. Today we have episode number 405. In this show, Tom Ziegler and I have an incredible discussion with John O'Leary. John was burned on 100% of his body at the age of nine, mostly third-degree burns. He should have died right away. He did not, and the reason why is significant. I mean, we get a lot of requests from people wanting to be on this show. I watched about 30 seconds of a video of John presenting to an audience and immediately invited him on here. I mean, we want the best in inspiration, and the guy is just flat out inspiring. His story's amazing, and yet it's also our story. I mean, we have things happen to us to different degrees, and we make choices. And John's story in this will um, it'll it'll set you back a little bit and spring you forward as well. I think it did for me. Uh, What's a quick bio on John? If you do not know of him, though, so many people do. He's kind of taken the world by storm since his book on fire has come out. And you can find that at John O'Leary inspires.com and, uh, or wherever you buy books as well. But here's his bio real quick. So John survived months in a hospital bed, dozens of surgeries, years of therapy for more than two decades. John kept his story quiet and his scars covered. But a turning point in his business and life came when he finally embraced the scars as a gift. Okay, folks, just to insert right there, I actually talk, ask John about that specific story right there, that he didn't just have this thing happen to him and he quickly overcame it and everything was shining. Uh, 20 or two decades, he said, where he was quiet. And then what did happen that made him then come away from that. But he realized his his tragedy came from some of the greatest gifts in his life, character, faith, uh, that, that the tragedy gave him these, these things, character, faith, network, passion, gratitude, all gifts born from the fire. He now travels the world encouraging others to wake up from accidental living and live up to the fullness of their promise. As a boy in the hospital bed, John could not have foreseen the amazing things he would accomplish, but his journey proved more empowering and rewarding than he could have ever imagined. It gave him strength. It fueled and drove him on. It provided hope. It taught him compassion and understanding and gave him a solid foundation for living. Today, John is a national best-selling author, international speaker, active volunteer, and proud family man. 
Uh, John married his college sweetheart, Beth, 13 years ago. They have four beautiful, rambunctious children, uh, an active faith life, and they live in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, so again, you can find all you want about John at uh, johnolearyinspires.com. And some of the things right there in his bio, I pulled out and just uh, drilled into with him. Uh, even the point of he was asked you know, if he had it all over, you know, all this, all this inspiration, everything he does comes from this tragedy. If he had to do it over again, would he? And he says, yes, it's a little bit hard, honestly, for me to swallow. And again, we talk about it in the show. Um, and he is incredibly inspiring. I really would, uh, counsel you go get his book on fire. It's, uh, it's significant. Hey, today's show is brought to you in part by designcrowd.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D.com. Design Crowd is a website that helps entrepreneurs and small business owners outsource or crowdsource custom graphics, logos, and web design from designers around the world. Design Crowd has more than 500,000 designers from over 100 countries ready to help you with any creative and design projects you might have. So again, check out Design Crowd, that's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D.com to learn more and get started. Uh, or go to designcrowd.com slash Ziggler and you will get a special VIP offer for our listeners. Before I bring you, John, I want to read a testimonial that he wrote to me uh, about Ziegler. He said, Zig Ziegler's book, See You at the Top, I practically wore this book out in the early stages of transitioning from one business, real estate development, to another, speaking and writing. It was incredibly and positively influential. It changed me as a leader, a man, a goal setter, and a business owner. Love that testimonial. And folks, if you want your own copy of See You at the Top, Zig's best all-time selling book, go to Ziggler.com. If you want to engage more deeply with the message of that book and the complete message of success that is Ziggler, I encourage you to visit Ziggler.com slash live to win where Tom Ziegler hosts live webinars with live Q&A and people actually engage on these topics and issues. Again, it's Ziegler.com slash live to win. Okay, then folks, here is the amazing, inspiring, and just truly convicting discussion that Tom Ziegler and I had with John O'Leary. So John, we get a lot of interview requests for the Ziegler show, lots of PR companies and publicists. And, you know, our show, as you know, is different. I mean, great product services, ideas, those are great, but they're not necessarily the focus here. There's lots of shows that uh, highlight those. We want the best in inspiration and motivation, the, the fuel that everything runs on. And uh, as you know, without fuel, uh, even a Ferrari is useless. So when I was contacted about you, I took my usual, you know, cursory look and hit your video and replied back, I think in about 60 seconds with absolutely. When can we get you on here? <laughs> I mean, the story's compelling. You're compelling. So just thank you so much for giving yourself to the Ziggler audience today. Kevin, I'm a huge fan and uh, delighted to be on your podcast. Well, I, I had, I'll tell you again last night, um, I'm, and I'm right away, I've got so many things. We could, we could do a two-hour show here, but we'll try to curtail it. But uh, so, so much it was relevant. I've got an older son who's had some medical issues, not to the extent of yours, but he is going to be uh, stoked. He just got back from college last night for the summer, so his first 
chore at home because you know he's got to hit that again now is he's going to read your book and it's going to inspire the fire out of him so that book uh with the tagline the seven choices to ignite a radically inspired life i mean you had as i read about you in your history john you had your massive tragedy as a kid at age nine you fought to live but you didn't hit the inspiration and motivational trail at 10 you said you spent eight months in bandages then you spent the next 20 years in self-imposed bandages so i'm wondering what finally ignited you Gosh, so uh, first of all, again, delighted to be on your show. One thing I think every one of your listeners knows but maybe doesn't always articulate is that everyone has a story. It's just usually not the story we are telling the world. And so, yeah, Mm. I I had a wild story at age nine. It was the kind of story, though, that rather than embracing and celebrating and telling the world all about it, instead I went in the direction I think many of us run toward, which is to hide from it which is to cover it up, mask over it, put on makeup, apply busyness, apply whatever else you want to strive toward. And that's what I did for the majority of my life. I I lost my fingers as a child to the fire. I got scarred from my my neck to my toes. And so the last thing that I wanted to do was to proclaim that this was beauty because I never thought it was. What changed me and what fueled my motivation and inspiration was reading my mom and dad's book when I was 27 years old. Uh, Oh, 18 years almost after being burned, they realized uh, while sitting actually in, in a church watching me get married that this tragedy that they had endured when they were young parents was actually triumphant. That it doesn't end in dire death or despair, but it ends on an altar and it ends with a gorgeous brunette walking down toward me and it, it, it ends in the sunshine. It took them 20 years almost to realize that. They write a book, they print 100 copies. I begged not to do it. I thought no one would be interested. It turns out they sell not 100 or 200. They've sold over 70,000 subsequently, which is really big for a, a little mom and dad to do out of their garage. One of the copies they sold was to your guest today. So John O'Leary gets to buy his own book for 10 bucks or whatever the cost was. <laughs> and, and in that investment and in those three hours in front of my mom and dad's words and in front of my own picture, I mean, imagine an unauthorized biography of your life being written by the people who know you best. I I realized for the first time that the tragedy and the scars were far from it. It was triumphant. It was beautiful. It was redemptive. And it, in turn, leads to the best of my life. I just never took the time to realize it. I, you know, so I read that in your book about you reading your mom and dad's books and, and realizing that what you went through, how it impacted each member of your family. I didn't know that that was the catalyst that brought you uh, from where you were with those self-imposed bandages, as you talk about, to the trail you're on now. So that was that, uh, as, as uh, Donald Miller would say, the inciting incident. And you call yes. it the inflection point, right? Yes, same idea. But I think the inciting incident or the inflection point, these radical experiences in our lives aren't always radical. It's not always the diagnosis. It's not always on the, on the altar or the stage or in the job interview that we experience these inflection points. It's momentary, day-by-day living that in reality, if we are open to it, turn out to be the greatest inflection points of our lives. These are the moments, the opportunities that can lead us down one path or down another. And they not only lead us down these paths, they they lead those in our shadows. They lead those in our light. They are the opportunities in front of us each day to wake up from accidental living and the ability to transform the lives of those around us. They're gifts. But we got to be open to it, and we have to be bold enough to open them when they arrive. 
Accidental living. Um, I'm, I'm writing that down. That'd be another, maybe that should be your next book, uh, is our <laughs> cultural tendency. I, I like that. It, it's great. And in these interviews, we often get what I think is a, a few books out of each one of them. People need to go I write agree. these things. Well, so you say as a lead off in your book, in your message, you can't always choose the path you walk in life, but you can always choose the manner in which you walk it. Uh, we had Seth Godin on not long ago, and he told that story we've all heard, a made-up story, I think, of you know two guys who go from a shoe company to sell shoes in some far-off land. Uh, the first guy comes back, says, complete disaster, no opportunity here. <laughs> Nobody wears shoes. The other guy says, this is the greatest opportunity ever. Yes. Nobody has shoes. And, and so diving in here first, you know, I mean, I've heard the question asked before, you know, what's the difference between someone who overcomes a tragedy or a trial like you did as opposed to the person and so many people who are overwhelmed by it? But that feels like that, that is framing it that way feels like it's the luck of the draw by what they have inside of them. Instead, I wanted to ask you, uh, for all those who have been a victim to a tragedy, a trial, a lack, what can they do now? Yes. To overcome instead of being overwhelmed. Where do they start now? Yeah. So it's an, it's an awesome question, Kevin. And I think everybody's been through tragedies. Not, uh, certainly not a whole lot of your followers have been burned on 100% of their body. Not you know, this, this is a most unusual story. I get that. But there is no doubt that we have been stuck in TSA and missed our flights that we have been through challenges and relationships, that we have lost family members and dear friends and have endured broken relationships, that things we strive to achieve professionally or financially have not come to pass. We've, we've all of us, been burned. All of us. So now what? Okay, I, mean, I think it's really important we start there. So now what? Because the reality is we've been there. So now what? I, I would encourage your listeners and me and all of us to choose how they ask three questions each day. The, the, the first three questions, and I'm very mindful of these, these are called the victim's questions. They lead us down one path that will allow us to see everything as negative. The fires, the divorce, the struggles, the bankruptcy, all the things we deal with. The three questions I think victims love to ask. Number one, the great victim's question. Why me? Oh, man, why did I get blown up in the garage? Why did I go through that struggle? Why did I miss my flight? Why me? The second question when we love to be over on that side of the, uh, the aisle, we ask is, well, geez, who cares? Hmm. Now that it happened, geez, who cares? It, it's the question of indifference. Who cares? Yeah. And that leads us down the third and the final path. It's the final nail in our coffins. I guarantee it. What more can I do? I'm just one. This thing has happened. There's nothing left for me to do now that it has gone on. And instead, I would encourage me, because i got to talk to myself first. I'm not preaching. I'm talking to myself, and we happen to be listening, you, Kevin, and all the other followers out there, to ask three radically different questions. I think these are questions that will transform not only our lives and our work and our finances and our relationships, but everybody who comes into contact with us. Victor's questions, three questions. The first one we ask every morning as the sun rises in the east is, why me? Why am I so lucky? Why am I so blessed? Why, why do I get to do this work and this relationship and this opportunity in front of me at the freest, wealthiest period in the history of civilization? I mean, this is radical. And maybe today I'm going to open my eyes to actually see it in front of me. Why me? I am lucky. I choose to act like it, which allows us to jump out of bed, which allows us to race off to that hot shower. I mean, have you ever thought about how complex it is that you have hot running water every morning that you reach for the handle? It freaks me out. 
It is a gift. It is a blessing. And now that you know it, you get to uncross your arms and ask the question, who cares if it's hard, if there are challenges, if I have some difficulty, if I've been burned, if it's not perfect every day for me? Who cares, man? I am on mission. I know what my life is about. I have goals in front of me. I'm on fire for it which allows us to race through the challenges and the tragedies and the triumphs of the days. Ultimately asking the third and the final question, I hope your listeners sense where this may go. Gosh, what more can I do? What more can I do to ensure? I think incremental change is powerful. What more can I do to ensure that tomorrow is even better than today? Not, not to sustain, not to endure, not to get through and dog paddle through life. But what more can I do? I love the words you used earlier to wake up from accidental living and to ensure that tomorrow is even better than today. Well, I love that. You made me flash back, and I've told this story before, but in Dad's final couple of years on this earth, he was struggling. He had physical challenges. He had had a fall and lost a short-term memory, and then he had Alzheimer's. And I would pick him up from where he lived, and I would bring him to the office at for 7.30 devotions every Monday morning at the office. So I pick him up. It's a bright day. The, the sun is glaring, and I look at Dad in the passenger seat, and I just go, how could this happen? I mean, yeah. here's a man who's probably poured more of his life into the world than anybody I've ever met strangers, friends, it didn't matter. It was the same. It was 100%. How could this happen to me? I remember driving down the road, and at that very instant, Dad just started shaking his head from left to right. He made this sound, "Mm, mm, mm." (laughs) and he starts tapping the dashboard, and he looks at me, and he said, Son, can you believe how much we've got to be grateful for? And then he started going down the list. And I'm thinking, don't you see what's going on? And then I realized he did see what was going on, and he made the choice Hmm. to make it work, to make what he could. Dad's mentor said this. He said, uh, his name is Fred Smith. He said, you know, when, when things happen to us and we have an issue, we have to decide if it's a fact or a problem. Yes. Facts we deal with, we accept. Problems we can do something about, right? And I'm sure it takes you a little longer to get ready than than somebody who's, right? Yeah, of course. That's a fact. But it's a problem you can overcome. I mean, it's just a choice. It's a decision. It's an attitude. It's no big deal. Well, right. so Thank you, right, page nine in your book, again, uh, that I'm pouring over again last night uh, from front to back. Page nine, you say, own your life, fight for it. It's your choice. So it feels like no matter what, you're trying to take away anyone's excuse for anything. I mean, is that at the core a primary battle cry? Oh, Kevin. So, and I, by the way, everything I share, I learn also from the people that I got to look up to in life. Pastors and priests and rabbis and parents, guardians, siblings, Zig Ziglar and a whole lot of other folks that I looked up to as well. But maybe one of the most influential leaders in my life was my mom. And I, I remember coming in from the hospital, into the hospital. I would not seen my family yet. I've been burned on my entire body. I'm dying. And my mom walks in. She takes my right hand in hers, pats my bald head. She looks me in the eyes, and she says, I love you. Baby, I just love you. 
And I remember looking up at my mom and I said to her, Mama, knock it off with the love. Am I going to die? And in asking that, I knew her answer back to me was going to be, Baby, you are fine, honey. You are fine, sugar. We're going to get you out of here today. That's what I thought she would say. But instead, Kevin, she looked back at me and she said, Baby, look at me when I'm talking to you. Do you want to die? It's your choice. It's not mine. And I remember saying, Mama, I do not want to die. I want to live. And her response was, good, then look at me, honey. You take the hand of God. You walk the journey with him. But you fight like you have never, ever fought before. And and on the day I was burned, that great lady reminded me of the power of choice and the, the power of owning your life in spite of the challenges you face. She taught me that day not to die. And then I think a lesson she taught me five months later was equally as important. I, I, I've just come through surgery after surgery. I finally come home from the hospital. It's our first evening back in this house as a family. She made my favorite meal. It's in front of me on the table. The only problem that evening is I don't have hands to eat it. I don't have fingers to grab that fork. And my favorite sister, her name is Amy. I know she's listening right now. Amy grabs my fork. She scoops up potatoes. She brings it toward my mouth. And right before the plane enters the hangar, right right before the food goes into my mouth, my mother looks at my sister this time and she says, Amy, you drop that fork. If he's hungry, he'll feed himself. Uh, that, that night, my mom ruined my dinner. Uh, she, she eventually would lead me to flipping over my plate because I was so frustrated. But by the end of the night, through anger and tears and certainly a ruined family gathering, a little boy, still scarred and still broken and still in a wheelchair, had figured out, out a way to put a fork between his two hands, scoop a couple potatoes, bring it toward my mouth, look with hate toward my mom. Mm-hmm. But she taught me how to eat. In other words, and I don't think this is trite, she taught me how to live. On day one, she taught me not to die. But then just as important, when I came home from the hospital, she taught me how to really live. And these are choices in front of us every day. But we have to have eyes and hands and hearts to see it. Okay, you stole my note cards because that was really where I was going to dive in there. That story, John, I, I, I'm a dad to seven kids. Um, and as I said, my oldest has gone through some significant uh, right. trials. That story, uh, I'm going to have to deal with that story. Uh, I'm going to talk to my, I, literally, seriously, I'm going to talk to my wife about that, that story because it troubles me because I have to admit that even hearing that, my first tendency, even thinking about it, would have been to say, you know, hey, buddy, okay, we'll take care of you tonight. And maybe tomorrow, yeah. but you are going to have to learn to eat. We're not going to enable you because enabling is a big issue for me. But okay. for her to do it, and you even admit, man, right there, you, you hated her, but she taught you that, uh, troubles convicts. I, I got to deal. Yes. I'm going to deal with that. Literally. I'm going to, I'm going to go. I've got kids from 20, almost 21 down to six. And cause it feeds into one of my other questions is when we go through things, we, as parents, we've talked about this in other shows, we tend to try to make things better for our own kids. And yet it's that strength that we got through the hardship that made us what we are today. How do we juggle with that with our kids? And not that this is a parenting focused show but as we look at that i think it's relevant to so many people i'll so i'll put that before you how has yeah. that impacted your own uh parenting and how you want to as andy andrews told us not raise great kids but raise good adults mm. well i think you know people always are striving to be great leaders but i think we got to start at home and so i think this is a parenting show we don't have to put the tagline parenting for tomorrow's future or whatever on the front of it but this is a parenting show it's a leadership show 
let's figure out how to do our life better so that we can lead those we love more effectively. Part of that is what we do at home. My mom ruins not only my first night at home, it was a Saturday. The following Tuesday, the piano teacher shows up. I, I, I never liked piano, man. I hated piano as a kid, so I figured, thank you, Lord. I finally don't have to take piano anymore. <laughs> what a gift, man. At least one good thing came out of the fire. Well, Mrs. Bartello is in the room. She's guiding. I'm one of six. All the other kids through their piano lessons. Thank heavens, I'm in a wheelchair. I don't have to mess with it. And then near the end of it, my mom comes in. She takes the brakes off my chair. She rolls me in. And my thought is, what are you doing, mom? I don't even have fingers anymore. I can't play the piano. It, it was the most useless exercise for a little boy with bandaged hands to play the piano. And yet today, almost three decades later, that little boy, now a man, now a father of four, loves to play the piano, man. And I rock out anything from typical church fair like Amazing Grace to Imagine Dragons, man. I, you, you pick the song. I can play it. Not because I'm great, but because my mom was an incredible leader. So I, I credit her with why I look people in the eye when I shake their hands. That's why I, I strive to do great things for others in life. It's why I play the piano and can pick up a fork. And so if you ask me how has this influenced the way I, I lead my own life or my own kids today, uh, hopefully profoundly, things that are worthy are not easy. And if you want to help your child succeed, don't carry them over the finish line. Trip your way and crawl your way forward with them. And I think it's the most effective way for not only them to finish strong, but for us to see examples in their life and in ours of what real heroism, what real leadership looks like. Okay, this is for my kids. Miller kids, you heard it. He said it. It wasn't me, all right? So there you go. There's there's the premise right there. And I got two boys, uh, ages 10 and 11, reluctantly, play, especially one, playing piano. So there you go, guys. <clears throat> You're stuck with it for life right there. Um, Let me just say one more thing. I, I get some negative blowback to this. I get a lot, we, I wrote about it one time on our blog, and a lot of people wrote in saying how cruel your mother is. How cruel? I mean, how could you not at least let one night of celebration? I, I, I understand that, man. Totally. Yeah, and so do I. And I understood it as a kid, and I, I wrestled with it as a man. But let, let's let's own the fact that she'd been with me every step along the way in the hospital for five months, and she would be the one shepherding me forward for the next couple of years at home, and she is still with me today. In, in fact, uh, she's the one I had breakfast with this morning. We had a wonderful two-hour breakfast together. I never get two hours face-to-face with, with, with my mom. That day broke her heart mm. at home when she made me eat, and yet she knew sometimes the short-term pain leads to long-term results, man. It's not always easy. It's not always sexy. It's certainly not always popular. But if this is done in great love, it will change not only our life and our heart, but also the lives and the hearts of those we serve with that kind of love. Uh, yeah, again, man, I think you're, I assume many of the listeners like myself are going to have to grapple with that as parents. And then the next step of that though, is okay for us, for, for me sitting right here, I'm 45 years old. I am no longer parented, uh, by anyone, even though my wife may feel like she has to sometimes, but I, I'm technically not. We're on our own. We're fully responsible for ourselves now. So some have been coddled and protected and enabled. They don't have the uh, blessing of pain that you do to have gone through a trial that they had to overcome or not, but gain the strength from that. They are where they are now and they were not given a lot to strengthen them. Where do they start now? I mean, from a biblical standpoint, we talk about that, you know, God help me through the trial. That's where I call to yeah. you. That's where I get strengthened though. None of us wake up in the morning and say, God, please make today suck. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we benefit from it. So uh, where do we, where do we go? Where do those who are out there saying, I, I, I was enabled. What do I do about it? How do I, how do I become strong now? Perfect. 
So I, I think it begins with us realizing how fortunate we are. I, I think in first world nations, I would imagine most of your listeners are in one of those first world nations. I find that we are grateful for the least. And then you travel somewhere overseas, you go serve somewhere on a mission, and you realize these folks that have nothing, and I do nothing, are grateful for everything. So let, let's wake up to that truth first. And let's then take the next step of, okay, so what do we do about it in the lives that we currently have? There's a concept called falsifying trauma, which is a really cool idea, and it comes actually from forest fires. When, when there are terrific fires, like there are raging right now in Canada, oftentimes they'll try to replant trees. So rather than wait for nature to do its thing, they'll come in and they'll plant year and two-year-old trees in the hopes of quickly spurring growth. And what they find is almost every one of those trees they plant die. So they ask themselves, why, man? There's nothing to take their water source. There's no, there's no other high vegetation that's taking their sunshine. Why are these things dying? And they realize it's because they've been coddled. They've grown up in a greenhouse where everything was perfect for them. So these same arborists and researchers then changed the way these things grew, which means they would fake tragedy in the greenhouse. They would flood in sunlight. So it became so hot, these things would almost burn out. Then they would create shade. So there was no sunlight. So they would almost die without the the sun. They would flood it with water. Then they would take away the water. Then those that survived, they would take from the greenhouse, plant them. And the vast majority, over 80%, survive. Falsifying trauma. It's this idea of putting yourselves in situations that aren't easy. You're not setting yourself up to succeed. And yet when you fall flat, and you will fall flat on occasion, you are free to pick yourself up, learn the lessons, and do life better afterwards. So how do you falsify, falsify trauma? Uh, maybe for some of us, it's running a marathon. Mm-hmm. Maybe for some of us, it's serving in the mission field. Maybe it's reading things that are above your, your pay grade. Maybe it's raising your hands at work when you're not qualified yet to do it. It's putting yourself out there in areas that will force you to stretch, force you to grow, force you sometimes to fail and fall, force you to learn from that, and then to do even better afterwards. That's actionable steps, folks. I mean, hearing that, that that's significant. Because that is a question, I think, that comes up here as we do so many interviews with incredible people like you, John, that they so often have that story of overcoming something, and yet we have a culture who less and less has had to. Like you said, we're in such a, we're the wealthiest time uh, of uh, ever. I I am going to have to do that with my own. Looking at my own <laughs> kids, I mean, I've got it. Uh, we're going to have to do that because we don't have to. We can give them anything they want to uh, right. that, that we want to. Um, yeah, Tom. I mean, you're you're a product of this, just like I am. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm just sitting here going. You know, I, I just made a connection I hadn't made before, and. People talk about how do you get a breakthrough in life? Well, you do something extremely difficult, and it gives you the self-confidence to go to the next level. Well, that's good, but this falsifying trauma concept of, hey, we do something difficult so that when the difficulty does come, we can survive the fire, we can survive the flood, we can survive the shade. Whatever it is that comes, we do the hard things so that we can get in that position. And it's, you know, going back to Andy Andrews' episode when he talked about the greatest generation, you know, we think it's the World War II generation. They're not the greatest generation. Their parents were the greatest generation. Hmm. And what did they do to those kids during the Great Depression? They made them survive the, the trauma because they had no choice, right? They prepared them to become the greatest uh, generation by raising them with, hey, all we got is each other. Let's go work. Yeah. Right on. Absolutely. Well, so I want to hit on your 
Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life, which, folks, I'm not going to give you the details because you got to go get the book at John O'Leary <laughs> Inspires or anywhere else. But again, John O'Leary Inspires, that's where you can get it. Go there. But I do want to hit and just ask, and this is my personal tact because it's what I care about in making sure people have the best chance, myself included, to digest a truth, is to ask some of the hard questions around it. And so on these ones, I want to do that a little bit, just explore them a little bit. So number one, you start off with accountability. You say it ignites within us the power to surrender to things we just can't change, fight for the things we can and celebrate each moment on the journey going forward. I want to hear some more from you because I mean, most people, uh, the majority have a job with an employer and coworkers and there's accountability uh, deadlines and things that you have to, uh, you have accountability there, you know, as spouses and parents, we have accountability from our, our spouse and, and kids, but in our personal desires and endeavors, our callings, those secret desires, those dreams, we have no accountability. And I'm wondering where your perspective on how people can gain and enact accountability in their, in their striving. How do they do that? Yeah. So let me share this first. Nothing I share or write uh, is mine. I, I think everything that we have out there, it has already been, it's all already under the sun and it's been under the sun for millennia. So l- let's begin with, uh, this is not O'Leary's bright idea. These are things that I've learned along the way that I'm trying to teach myself, my family, my babies, and those that I get to speak to in the community. So I, I'm, a, I'm a practitioner of this, not, not the guy who made up the book. So I'll, be, I'll begin with that fact, Kevin. But, but as far as how do you get accountability, man, we don't do life well by ourselves. If you go back through almost every mass shooting, go ahead and grab the headlines, man. Google it right now. Have fun with it. What almost every descriptor of the shooting will be is this. Uh, He, or sometimes she, was kind of a lone wolf. They kind of stayed to themselves. They did their own thing. They kind of hung out in the shadows. They did their own thing in life. We are not intended to do work, to do faith, to do life, to do exercise, to do relationship by ourselves. You're not intended to do it. So don't try. Don't try to be that, that ninja in the night that hangs out by yourself and gets it all done. You're not that good. No offense. None of us are. So when you are trying to build a life that is worthy, that is truly something of significance, find someone that you can look up to. Find someone you can share it with and find someone that can call out your bowl when you don't show up. I, I think the reason, <laughs> the reason why if you have someone you run with in the morning, why you are there at 530 is because you know if you're not there, she's going to be waiting for you by yourself, by herself. And that you can't let someone down. The the reason AA is one of the great leadership organizations of all time, Alcoholics Anonymous. Why does it work, man? It's not just the 12 steps. It's not just their belief in a higher power. It's not just those things. It's because you walk into a basement of a big old church. You go down, you grab your coffee, you sit in a circle, you look around, and you realize, dang, I'm not on my own. I'm not on my own anymore. So my first encouragement to those of us doing life is don't do it by yourself. Realize the great gift that is your life. Step up to the potential within your life, but don't try to do it all by yourself. And you're, yeah, you're echoing so many of the, I recently read a book on the blue zones, the places in the world where the healthiest people reside. They live the longest, they live the most vibrantly, a lot of great things in there, but what it was really culminated by the author whose name escapes me right now is the best. If you want to be that, if you want to live uh, and be at your healthiest longevity quality, get in a community that fosters that number one, number one value, which is what you're telling us here, Tom. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, even even the scientists, the biologists will say that we are wired for connection. I mean, every part of our being screams out for relationship. Uh, the Harvard 75-year grant study said that people in their 90s uh, that they followed who were happy and satisfied with their life, their number one goal in life was relationships. Hmm. I mean, it's everything, uh, the way we are created is for relationships. Even our whole free enterprise system is relationships. I mean, think about it. If you want to go lone wolf and do everything yourself on the farm, dig your own wealth, you know, raise your cattle, grow the corn, you're going to do all of it very, very mediocre at best. As soon as you specialize and become the best in whatever your gift is, you explode in potential but you can't do it unless somebody brings the water, provides the feed, does all the other stuff. In other words, even our economy depends on relationships. Right. Yeah. It's interesting when you see – I was thinking just of some of the epic movies, and they so often have this somewhat of a rock star, but the lone wolf who's out on their own. And then, of course, the culmination and the beauty of the movie is they get with a community. They get with relationships and and the, the song goes off into the sunset. All right. Well, self-acceptance here. This is another one that I think is, well, you know better than I do, but is, is a hard one. You say you call people to accept their stories and scars, even celebrate them. And I know some folks in my own personal life that have a really hard time with that statement alone would be bitter to them and accepting the hardships that have befallen them. And yeah. you're saying understand them. Uh, they can give you strength, but that, so we got, again, another choice, another perspective, but to just put it on the table there and saying, okay, th- I am so hurt by whatever I, I am direly, uh, hurt. And we of course have some of the most shameful atrocities ever that we have people in our own lives that, that have encountered to take that from weak to strong. It mm. seems hard. It's just, it's just a decision, but I mean, it's a big one. It's a huge one. It's life altering. Give us some, give us some, give us something on that. Yeah. So I, I guess I would take it from two different standpoints. Number one, for those of us who have had babies, whether we have done the pushing or been lucky enough to be in the room while someone stronger and better than we were were uh, the ones amen. pushing, yeah. you find as you're watching that little chart as it sits next to the bed, and it, it just kind of does the up and down, up and up, up and down. And then all of a sudden, when the pain is approaching, you can see it before the pain even shows up. It starts going up, 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 up to the right, and you're like, oh, dang, here comes the contraction. Here it comes, baby. It's going to hurt. And as it gets to the highest point, the leader in the room who knows the best, knows the most, will say to the mom, okay, push, push. And it always strikes me as unusual. Here's, from what I understand, the most painful physical experience in a woman's life. And at the worst point in it, the expert is saying, oh, good. Here comes a good one. It's big, baby. Push. I think when we look back on our child deliveries or the struggles in life, we also realize that from the greatest pain in life came always, not sometimes, always the greatest growth. There's something to that. In the darkest moments in life when we were at the end of the rope in real time, if you can hang on and get through it and then look back with a decade or two or three or ten with experience, you realize, gosh, during that darkest time – in reality, that's when my character was growing. That's when I was leaning into my faith. That's when I was doing things that I would never have done otherwise. That's when I was doing my best during the dark days. Okay. And so I think it's really important to start with that. These are things that actually serve our best interests. We just don't know it in real time. And the second thing is when we are bold enough to embrace them. 
to pull them out of the closet, to mm-hmm. rip off the bandages and to quit masking up around it, when we're frank enough to share it with those around us, not out of ego, but out of love, we will frequently hear back the response from the people we share it with. Oh my gosh, you too. Like, holy crap, holy cow. Yeah, I wasn't burned, but my gosh, my first marriage, you got to hear what happened. It's just like that. And they're not at all like each other. And yet they're, they're full of brokenness. They're full of scar tissue. They're full of woundedness. And in time, they're full of healing. They're full of miracles. They're full of light and they're full of life. But you got to be bold enough to and transparent enough to share them first with the reflection in the mirror and then with those around us. Okay, that feels big because uh, that's where I was going to go really with that. I was thinking about people who had things. And I've got some specific people in mind right now in my life who have some things that are in their past that are there and they have handicapped them. And that was that was where I was going to even dive in further. But you just said it. I, I think you share, share it, get it out right. there on the open. That is, again, I love an actionable step. So folks, if you're sitting with something, a, a bitterness, a hurt, a shame, uh, an anger, uh, volatility, share it, get it out. Right. Whether it's, you know, you talked about AA, but if it's with, I would, I would assume uh, a, a counselor, a group or whatever, just get it out. Yep. I tell you, this, this is, to me, this is the key. When, when we have a program called our Ziegler Legacy Certification, where we certify people to teach our courses, and the number one thing that I emphasize in front of the room is don't tell Zig Ziglar stories. <laughs> you know what you need to do is you need to take these principles, the teaching, and you need to teach that. And you got to put your own stories in there. And the more blood, sweat, and tears, the more scars, the more I wish I hadn't have done that that you can put in there, the more connection you're going to get out of that audience. Because like you said, everybody in the room goes, me too, me too. Totally. And when we're transparent, when we're willing to share, the, you know, the things that we wish we hadn't done or the circumstances that we were too young to understand and had no control over and have carried some false sense of guilt around with us, because I don't know why we had that as a responsibility in our life, but we we, we taken that burden on and we shouldn't have. When we let that go, then all of a sudden the strength that you show is exactly that spark that somebody else in the room is going to need to take the first step. That's right. And I, w- I would say and remind everybody that storytelling is the finest and most surest form of transformation. I think we frequently try to overthink it with bullet points and everything else that we do uh, in our mental minds to make it big and to allow people to grasp onto it. But I think people remember stories. I think that's what the greatest teachers, Jesus being certainly, I think, the greatest teacher, teaches through parable. Not through bullet points, not through action items necessarily, but through storytelling. So let's never overcomplicate it. Best story wins. Let's make sure we share ours. One of the, one of the blessings I have is I work with a nonprofit called Operation Give Back, and their simple mission is to help wounded warriors uh, come out of that situation and help others. Their three words are connect, share, and serve. So I think it's funny. We just spent the first little part of this, you know, seven points here on connection. We got to connect. And then the second thing we do with these wounded warriors is we help them share their story because healing comes in sharing. And then all of a sudden they they join the military for this sense of responsibility to serve our country. And their injury has taken that ability away officially. But now they can go out and serve their own community again. And it's 
I mean, it's just a theme, isn't it? That you know, we find our strength in, in in connection, and then when we tell our story and we share, healing comes, and that gives us the capacity to serve. Well, man, it takes me right Thank back you, to my first note that I took on you in this in this interview right here, which was telling your story, the real story, maybe not the one that you have let other people uh, see or told to them. Um, thank you for that. Well, purpose, this next one, uh, seems to me incredibly, again, this is the next, the next choice. You said you might save a life, even your own. And I took that. I, I said, I know so many people and, uh, I would happen to be one of those who valiantly have tried to help and serve others while they themselves need so much saving. So on this note that you're giving that this, this premise you're giving us, would that be safe to say, even before you can really save another's life, stop, go save your own life first to a degree? Yeah, I think uh, you can't take care of others until you first take care of yourselves. You can't heal another person. I think sometimes this is what happens in education. It's what happens in sales. It's what happens in hospitals. You can't serve anybody else until you first really know who you are, what your values are, what your passion and purpose is in life. And then in knowing that and saving, to use your terms, uh, your, yourself, then you can go off and make the greatest difference possible. And you, you read this in the book, certainly, but my brother Jim was uh, – an incredibly fine example of this. I, you know, when I was burned in, in this garage explosion, I came running back out on fire into my mom and dad's house. Nobody's home to my knowledge. And I just stood on top of a rug of flame with flames leaping off of my body, three feet in all directions, having no idea what to do for myself, no idea how to save myself, just praying for a hero. And I see my 17-year-old brother Jim racing toward me, uh, he was not at all what I would think of as being my hero. He was not who I was praying for, in other words. He was a tough, older sibling. And yet this was his moment. This was his chance to change, to serve, to find purpose. He picked up a rug. It took him a couple moments, a couple minutes, quite literally, beat down the flames, burning himself in the process, carried me outside, saved my life. The entire time he swung down into the flames, he's burning himself. When you touch something hot, guys and ladies, our natural reaction is immediately to pull back. If our lives are only and uniquely about us and ourselves and our paycheck and our ego and our good looks, that's what we do. But when our lives are about others, when our lives are about purpose, when it's about something higher than ourselves, when it's about passion and service, that's what frees us to go off and do the next best thing, even if we get burned in the process. So, yeah, you got to be able to save yourself, but it doesn't stop uh, in your own home or your own condo, man. It, it allows you to live it in the mission field. That's uh, significant. I love, the, I love that analogy. Um, man, uh, okay, next one. Be a victor. <laughs> why me? Yeah. You came back to the question of why me, which we talked about, and how you changed that from the victim why me to the victor uh, uh, why me. And it, it reminded me back, I, was, I spent a long time, I've done a lot of work over the years helping people transition from traditional employment to self-employment. And I realized in that that they had to come to grips with who am I to do something different than the norm, right. something different than those around me, who it may threaten, it may scare, but who am I? I've got to come to grips with that. And I felt like your, 
you're calling us to that. Um, you said, you, and you said in that the manner in which we ask this question, why me changes everything that happens afterwards. Choose wisely. Folks, I'm going to say that again. Uh, why me? He's asking, okay. Talking about being a victor, the manner in which we ask this question changes everything that happens afterwards. Choose wisely. I mean, again, John, you're, you're back to choice. You're back to that. Right. It's, it, it is, it's, it's up to us. Which way are we going to go? I mean, it, it, it feels like this, this again, this is your battle cry. This is where well, you're at. Kevin, when I, you know, the, the book is called On Fire and the publisher, Simon & Schuster, wanted to put my picture on the front of it hmm. and I refused. And then they wanted to put it on the back of it and I refused. And that's not because I don't have boyish good looks, man. I, it, oh, I'm the, telling the, you. The, the reason I don't want my picture on the front or the back of this book is because I'm not the hero. I am uh, I'm learning lessons the hard way, and I'm sharing them with others, but I'm not the hero of this thing. And so in, in asking that question, I want to share a story of another hero because it's not me. Uh, I remember asking the question, why me, throughout my life, repeatedly, actually, and not as a victor, but as a victim. And there was a time when my father finally got eye level with me, and he looked me hard in the eyes and said, John, damn it, why not you? This terrible thing has happened. What are you going to do with it? And I pouted away, but I'll never forget that conversation because it allowed me to finally embrace, hey, you know what? Why not me? And I think it's easy to preach that, and it's easy to proclaim that, but it's way hard to live it. Mm-hmm. My dad not only kind of yelled it at me, but he models it. My, uh, my father has Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. today. He's had it for 28 years. And when Tom was sharing earlier about his father in the car, my dad can do nothing today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he, he's alive but he's in a wheelchair. He lost his job. He's lost the ability to speak for the most part. He's losing the ability to swallow. He's losing the ability to fully take oxygen into his lungs. I mean, he is losing everything except the goofy grin on his face and the zest in his life and the joy in his eyes. And so I sat with my dad maybe two years ago now on a screen porch. He's in a wheelchair. He spilt an iced tea a moment ago because he shakes. So I grabbed him another iced tea. I sat down next to him. I told him that I loved him and that he was my hero. And then I said, Dad, 26 years back then of Parkinson's, and you've never complained. How, how come you never complain about this? And his response, and Tom, you'll be nodding your head to this, is, John, how can I complain when I have so many reasons to be grateful? So I said to him, Dad, give me three things you're grateful for. Just three. You know, for Parkinson's, for the wheelchair. Give me three things, man. And the very first thing he said was, John, I'm grateful it wasn't a more serious disease. <laughs> And then I said, oh, okay, yeah, he's lost his job. He's lost everything, but he's glad it wasn't worse. Then he said, secondly, uh, I used to be so busy. Now I have nothing but time to reflect on who I am and where God is in my journey. I'm grateful for that time, actually. What, what beautiful space that has been given to me. And then he said, thirdly, I've always liked your mom. I said, Dad, I'm glad you like mom. You guys started dating when you were freshmen in high school. You've been together over 45 years. I'm glad you like your wife. And he said, uh, honey, he's got a very hushed voice, so I'll speak like my dad for a moment. John, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. All my coworkers showed me to the door. I had no value to them anymore. My friends realized that I can no longer play golf with them or go to sporting events with them. So they are pushing me away. But your mother, my wife, keeps stepping closer and closer and closer, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am to that. And so at this, 
I am a complete train wreck like I'm about to be if I keep going into it right now. And I stand up to give my dad this big, huge bear hug. And my mean type A former army dad sends, says to me very firmly, John, sit back down. I'm not done. And so I'm scared of my dad still. He can move pretty quick in that wheelchair. So I, I sit back down and my, my dad says, I'm not done. I got more. And I won't go through with you the laundry list on this show today. But I think he eventually shared 13 things that he's grateful to Parkinson's for providing him in his own life. 13 for the worst. And so when we think about the ways we can ask the question, why me? Yes, indeed, we can ask them as a victim, and it will get you nowhere. Or you can seek the goodness that has resulted from the explosions or the disease or the losses in your own life and realize, yes, indeed, they exist even in these places. Well, this feels like, again, these are, these are not uh, simple things to actually do, but they're simple answers. And so why me? And you came back again to gratitude. Why me? I mean, it gives us a focal point, folks, again, for taking action. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's, uh, it's, it's simple. Uh, well, which... Kevin, I, I do know you're big into action, so I want to make sure people have at least one action item. Here we go. Gratitude is actually not easy, but, it, but it's doable. And I would encourage folks, if you're wondering, well, how do I get more gratitude in my life? Consider a gratitude journal. This is so doable. And right now, I know some of your listeners are thinking, dude, I have no time for this. I got no time, so I'm going to help you find a little bit of time. Uh, Whatever time you set your alarm clock for in the morning, tomorrow morning, set it for 60 seconds earlier. One minute, and in that one minute of time you've just found, come over to the side of your bed. If you want to hit your knees, do it. If you want to sit in a chair, do it. If you want to grab a coffee and go to the screen porch, go for it. But grab a journal, sit there with the rising sun greeting the face that you have been blessed with, and ask the question, why me? And spend 60 seconds coming up with answers. Do it today, and then do it tomorrow. My key to it is this. You can't write down the same thing twice. So the first day is easy, man. Faith, family, health, close the book, start your day. The second day, now it's a little bit harder. Um, Sun, warm water, coffee. Uh, a car that might start. Okay, perfect. That's day two. Now you're in a day three. Now it gets even harder. But it, in that hard piece, it gets even better. A pen that works. My gosh, that's complicated. I've never thought about how complicated that thing is. A journal to write in. A mind to capture these thoughts. Perfect. Go on and on and on. And that gratitude journal will go deeper and deeper and deeper and inspire you to realize, wow, I am blessed. And today I will act like it. 60 seconds. I love it. It makes me think of the movie we bought a zoo with Matt Damon, and he right. has that, that line of it, just 20 seconds of insane courage. You're saying 60 seconds of gratitude. John, my wife worked through a hard time in her life. Uh, somebody gave her the book by Ann Voskamp, A Thousand Gifts, and she did a journal with the family. She asked us at certain points, she'd hand somebody the journal, say, hey, just think of a couple things. And she made it a family journal, and we hit a thousand and kept on going. Uh, we need to revisit that again. Well, hey, growth is your next choice, growth. And you set in that risking it all. And I wanted to hit on that because risk, anytime we talk about personal development, business development, uh, self-help, we talk about progress, risk comes in there. And I think it's a big, hairy deal for people to really look at it. Because when you say risking it all, I would guess if I had to do a poll that the first thing people think about is money, job, house, relationship. (laughs) 
You know, I know that from a self-employment and leading people there, that was really, when you talk about risk, that's what they're, they're thinking of. And I, I think it's broader than that, but I'll ask you for the average person out there like me that were listening, so you say risk it all. I, I imagine right. it goes beyond just those tangible things that we right away go, oh, no, 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 money, job, house, relationship. Give us a little more on that. So <laughs> there's a lot more, obviously, to give you on that. But for, for me, candidly, the, the, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a man of faith, and, and for me, the scripture that keeps me up at night and gets me up early, actually, and this is not uh, – at first, out of excitement, it was actually out of fear, is the story of the talents. Mm-hmm. Whether you got one, three, or five talents, you doggone well better, better double it. And I used to uh, sweat negatively when I would think about that. Like, am I actually doubling my talents or tripling my talents? And now it's not not – risk it's not fear it's actually joy i like i can't wait to stretch and to try to take whatever i have status wealth money relationship put it on the table go all in and do it again and realize the floor is not that far down i think the greatest risk is to not live up to the fullness of your abilities and it is a risk that all of us for the most part are assuming gladly each day not living up to the fullness of our abilities and my challenge to the reflection in the mirror is to be bold you talked about 20 seconds of courage Man, we need leaders who are going to live 24 hours of courage and wake up and do it again. It's not easy. There's a high likelihood of failure, and yet there's no doubt that when you fall, and you will, the foundation is not that far below you. Pick yourself back up and do it better tomorrow. Well, I love the perspective because you're taking risk, which I think we often think about. Like with food, we think, okay, if I'm going to get healthy, if I'm going to lose weight, what can I not eat? What do I have to take away? (laughs) And and my wife is brilliant on saying, okay, don't worry about that. Just just add some things in like water. How about some vegetables? Let's just add things in and slowly we'll push the other things out. And and so on you saying that, okay, I'm going to risk it all. It's not what what am I going to jeopardize? What do I have to really put up at Hawk? But you're saying, no, what do I have how can I increase it? Man, that feels exciting. That does feel I, inspiring. The, the, what, what made our America, and I think uh, commerce, so exceptional was the ability to risk. Mm-hmm. And I think when we take away that determination to take mighty risks for the opportunity to do great things, and this is not just a wealth conversation. This is a relationship piece. This is a faith issue. This is a service issue. This is a health choice. This is diet. When you take away the decision to risk everything, we are also taking away the great return that can come with that. Mm. So, yeah, I, I would encourage people, don't be comfortable. Yes, be content, but that's very different. Take bold risks and, uh, and do it not just for yourself but for those you serve. All right, we're going to run a little long here because we just can't leave this stuff. we got two more choices that I want to hit on, but still on this growth. You said you made the statement that I think is wor- we got to hit it. Growth is the only evidence of life. <laughs> Okay, because uh, when you, you say growth, I don't hear you saying that growth is just existent, make, make existence, making oh. it day to day. I mean, I could say, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I, I've churned out 20 years with kids. You know, they've grown. They didn't die. Hopefully I did some <laughs> good things. It, and you're saying, OK, sure. But is that growth? That's existence. So when you're saying that, uh, that's a big deal. If we are not growing, that is the evidence of life. Otherwise, we're the well to Tom with the walking dead with the zombies. Right. Yes. And I, yeah, there he is. He's walking right now in front of the screen. And we live in a culture of the walking dead. I think it's one of the reasons why it's such a popular show. We can identify not with the survivors, but with the dead. That is us, man. We idly, grayly, with broken down clothes, stem, stem, stem our way through life. 
And there, there should be a battle cry to wake up from that death sentence, man. Remove the grave garments. Let's get after this thing. And that's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy, but it is going to be transformative. Growth, how, how do you know that a plant is alive? As soon as grass stops growing, you can rest assured that the summer is in full season, man. And this baby is going to slowly start graying. It's going to start browning, browning, and it's going to return to wherever, wherever it came. And so my, my realization is it's not just true in nature with grass or with trees or with bushes. It's true in our relationships. It's true in our stock portfolios. It's true in everything that we do in our life. And the beautiful thing is it's a choice. It's a choice to invest ourselves in things that are worthy, to see them not only not die or not only endure until retirement, but to truly thrive. I think that that is our calling each day, to truly thrive. Don't just sustain yourself, but thrive each day. Absolutely. Thank you. So significance. This is near and dear to Tom's heart. Significance, one of his favorite words, favorite terms, favorite focal points, a mission of Ziegler, an underlying mission of that. Um, but to say significance, and we look at, well, you even made the statement uh, of burn brightly long after you are gone, which I appreciate that. I also know that we are flesh and we also want what's going to benefit me today. And I want you to hit on that. that yes, as we are looking at significance, and, and Tom, you too, as we're looking at significance, at mattering long after we're gone, at doing something that continues after we're gone and not being so short-sighted, just to look on this little life that we have now. But I want you guys to comment on the reality that I see and have experienced that when I live in that way, when right. we do those things, it makes today really stinking great too. So what I would suggest, and I love teaching through storytelling. I realize we're going through this pretty quick, but one of the great leaders. That's why they have to go get the book, okay? That's right. John O'Leary inspires, okay. That's right. On fire, baby. Check it out. So um, when I first came home from the hospital and had spent about a year in a wheelchair and was just slowly starting to walk again, there was a gentleman that I met named Glenn Cunningham. Glenn Cunningham, and maybe your listeners right now, Google him. Go to Wikipedia. Check him out. What you'll see is you'll see a guy who apparently got burned when he was little, figured out how to walk again, started running, became the fastest miler of all time, and then retired. Wow. So that's it in Wikipedia. This is the guy that I meet. This guy who got burned, should have lost his legs, somehow survived, kept his legs, became a runner, and now this... I think 83-year-old man is walking at my side, encouraging the little boy who also is burned, is also trying to figure out how to walk again, is also wondering what's in store for me. That yes, indeed, there are some amazing things in store, but baby, you've got to fight for it. You've got to keep walking toward it, and you can't ever quit. And so these are some of the things that I learned from my friend Glenn. A week after he left my side, I learned that he died of old age. He was surrounded by friends and family. That's what I learned, and I learned so much more about Glenn as he pursued significance, not just success in life. Success would have been him counting the medals that he had collected in the Berlin Olympics or in his race as being an academic and an all-American runner. But he never sat still. He never kind of took it for himself. It was always, what more can I do for those around me? This guy was such a phenomenal leader that the court systems in his neighborhood asked him to take on kids that were problem children. And Glenn had a very simple response to any request in life. It's one we all should be bold enough to respond with. His response was yes. Don't, don't worry about counting the cost. Don't ask yourself, well, how am I going to do this? His answer was yes. Yes, I will. 
So he did it once, then a second time, and then kids were kind of runaways, would come by his house. It wasn't a house, it was a ranch. And his simple rule was, yes, and I get to love you the way I love my kids, which means you'll live under my roof. I'm going to treat you like I treat my babies, but you're going to work. You're going to come under my law, and it won't be easy, but you will receive meal, you will receive shelter, you will receive love. By the time this great man, this great runner, this great survivor, and his great wife, Ruth, passed, this fella had said yes, this is going to freak you out, to more than 8,000 kids in his lifetime. 8,000 runaways, 8,000 broken kids, 8,000 foster children had come into his life and into his family life. He had said yes to 8,000 lives that continue on long after Glenn Cunningham has, has passed from the earth. Now, this isn't celebrated on Wikipedia. It's not celebrated as much in society. It's not something you can easily track on a trophy. But when you look for significance, these are the things that will far outlive your life here on earth. And Glenn is a beautiful example to me as a little boy learning how to walk and now as a man learning how to kind of live on how to say yes to the big stuff of life. Wow. That's dramatic. I'm going to go look the guy up. I've never heard that story at all. Yeah, that is amazing. And whenever I think of uh, significance, I think of legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the point of life, isn't it? To leave a legacy to create uh, a compound effect, to see ripples go on. Uh, I love that. There's so many organizations, so many companies, so many people dedicated to success. Significance is just one more step. Right. Right. And what if everyone said, you know what, I'm going to take that one more step. What would happen if everyone took that one more step? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be 8,000. What if it's only four? What if it's only two? What if it's only two? Yes. How long before the world has changed? 60 seconds in the morning, right, John? It's where it starts. And I always think success is the tale that follows significance. I think Glenn Cunningham, and there are various other examples portrayed in that chapter. Glenn Cunningham is an incredible example of a successful guy because – because he pursued significance. It, I think frequently what happens in life is we, we, we chase our goals and we know once we get there, then we will pursue the legacy. Once we achieve a certain status or a certain amount of wealth, then we can make a difference. That is such backward thinking. I, I would just encourage all of us, and I'm talking to the reflection in the mirror first, pursue significance, pursue that legacy that you were talking about, Tom, and in that, success is certain to follow suit. Yeah, I, I created a quote and it's and it's – it, it kind of goes over into the theology side, and I don't say it very often because I do it in the context of a lot of things, but it, but it says this. We are not called to be successful. We're called to be significant. And when we're significant, success is often part of the package. There you go. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. I got one more choice, but then, folks, we got to, uh, we're going to end with an action point. Um, John's ignition statement. So the last one, love. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to read from your paper here. Um, Every day we can choose. Shut people out or open our hearts. Clench our fists or open up our arms. The choice we make can transform lives. So opening hearts, opening arms. Uh, I know for a lot of folks, kind of back to the to the scenario of, of um, you know accepting what has happened to you and embracing that, that it can initially to open our hearts, open our arms. There's a lot of people have been burned with that, and they are now they are closed up. So to do this is going to risk something that hurt them in the past. I mean, is is it fair to say, as with most things of value, to lay it out on the table? If you're going to love, it will not be risk free. It's going to be hard again. <laughs> 
anything worthy is hard. Anything. And uh, what I would also suggest about that is things that are originally are worthy sometimes lose their luster to us. That, that, it's true in, in, in finance, faith, relationships, marriage, partnership, parenting, you name the thing, the, 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 the marathon running, baby, it all gets old quick. What, what I would say about love is, is maybe this. When we are blessed and lucky enough to find a, tr- a true life partner and we meet him or her at the altar of life, man, and that person walks toward us, we use the words, I do. Will you take this person? And the answer we proclaim with an explanation point is, with love, by the way, I do. I do, baby. I do. And then pretty quickly, man, that honeymoon ends. And the words shift to, I have to. Mm. And oh, cry. I, I, I have to. She'll kill me if I don't. Do. I, I have to. We, we take the job. We get the dream job. We do. Yes, we do. And then after a week of sitting in traffic on the way to the job or realizing the manager's not who we thought she might be, I have to. Mm. I have to do this thing. Or you talked about dieting earlier on, Kevin. I do, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to eat those veggies. I'm going to drink that water. I'm going to take back the freedom of, of my health. I do. And then eventually I have to eat the veggies and I have to drink water. And where is my soda, baby? Uh, my, my challenge to us is to realize we can motivate ourselves from one of two great places, two opposite sources. The first one is fear, that idea of I have to or, or else. It's the one that politicians utilize. It's the one that the media has grabbed onto and put in front of our faces every day. Alternatively, the one that we can choose and opt into is the one of love. It's the one where we get to, man. We get to show up. We say, I do. And in doing so, it changes not only our response to people, but also their response back. It's a transformative experience to step into any relationship with the words, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. All right. You just stepped on some toes of mine that I'll have to deal with <laughs> later with that. It, I, it, literally, it's, I, I have an, an issue that just came to mind, John, that I have done that with. Uh, I have been doing that, and I have been I've been living out of a high – I have to instead of I get to, and it's ridiculous and un, uh, unacceptable. Thank you uh, for that. Ignition statement. That's where I want to end here. You said crafting a short, simple reminder of our driving purpose. Folks, this is your last uh, blessed action step from this show. You're going to get the rest of them by buying uh, his book. Um, crafting a short, simple reminder of our driving purpose. And John, you, you cited yours. I thank you for doing that because God demands it. My family deserves it. And the world is starved for it. Ask, why are you here? Why do you want to thrive in life? Why give your absolute best and pour yourself into this situation with everything you have? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a question there. I, so thank you for the exercise for us all. To, I'm going to do it to sit down. We, we, we look at, uh, we, we had an interview recently. We talked about values. You know, we talk about mission statements. We talk about goals. But an ignition statement uh, right. To me, a motivation statement and, and yours, uh, I'm going to dwell on yours because God demands it. My family deserves it. And the world is starved for it. I just lost all my excuses, John. <laughs> that's the idea, Kevin. And that's what that statement should do for all of us. And if they want to cheat and take that one word for word, run with a baby, make it a business card, claim it as yours, put your name below it. So where did it come from? Though I think that's the question. Mm. We all in business have mission statements. Every business that I'm aware of has some type of mission statement, and for the most part, they're hollow words that hang somewhere with cobwebs. They're too long. They're too hollow. They mean very little. I, I think businesses should have mission statements that are extraordinarily worthy, that turn people on to wake up early, get into work, do their best, stay late, and impact while they're there. Ignition statements are our individual response to it. 
they are what allow us to become the best version of ourselves regardless of the challenges. And the key to them, I think, ultimately is this. It's not just what you do while you're at work. It's what you do on your way to work. It's what you do while you're dressing in the mirror. It's what you do before you get in front of the mirror. It's what you do when you come home from work. It's how you greet every person along the way. It's how you live 24-7, that undivided life that we all are blessed with. It's all-encompassing, so it keeps you lit up for your lives regardless of where you are, regardless of what you're doing, regardless. This is key of how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And the question it helps you ask and answer is, why do I choose to thrive? in every experience, and again, just so they can hear it and steal it or make their own, for me, whether I'm with a TSA agent who is strip searching me again, or I'm with my spouse or four babies, or I'm jet lagged, or I'm in front of a big audience, or I'm in front of two friends on a podcast, the reason I choose to do my best is because God demands it. The world is starred for it. I would love to leave folks with that question. Why do you want to thrive in life? Maybe that's my, my wife keeps telling me I got to get a tattoo. That might be it because I want one that inspires and convicts me. Why do you want to thrive in life? So folks, again, the book is on fire and it's the seven choices to ignite a radically inspired life. John's site where you can get involved with him, which you direly need to do is John O'Leary inspires.com. John, thank you. Thank you for this. I am going to listen to it with my family um, uh, and uh, be glad, uh, be thrilled to share it with the Ziegler audience and the tens of thousands there. And I hope it leads to tens of thousands more who come and listen to the life-giving message you have. Thanks for spending your time and your heart with us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, John. And Tom, before everybody runs, they just, I just need to share this. I, I'm a... Uh... I am far from being an extraordinary leader. I'm a sojourner on the way and trying to get better. But when I was at my worst, I turned to a guy named Ziegler, and I read everything that that old fella had ever written, and it transformed me from stinking thinking and everything else that we could quote to setting goals, to knowing my values, to knowing the foundation, to understanding the value of mentors. I mean, I'm here because of a whole lot of things that have worked purposefully and perfectly for me, including God's grace. But there is no doubt, Tom, that I'm here because of your dad's wisdom. And so, Kevin and Tom and Ziegler followers, I'm grateful to be on the show. I'm honored to be in your midst, and I wish you all the best going forward. Uh, Thank you, brother. We'll use that testimony. What a gift. Thank you, John. Thanks, everyone, for listening and being with us in The Ziegler Show. I'll talk to you in the next one. 